Well, that was quite lovely. So good to have people in the room singing, and thank you for our musicians. And if you've been following along with us, you know that we have been going through the book of Revelation, so I want to invite you to take out a Bible in front of you. You can use an app on your phone. We today are going to do something a little bit different for a sermon, because as we get to this part of Revelation, it's going to look like this throughout the rest of our time studying Revelation. There's a lot of symbolic language, figurative speech, metaphors can be very confusing. Revelation is a difficult book. We're going to kind of go verse by verse and unpack this so that you understand what the very first hearers understood and why this text is so pivotal and important, not only for their life, but our life today. Page 10. 28. Now, as you find that, let's recap where we've been, because where we've been will set us up for today. First of all, week one, we looked at how Jesus and his rule and reign in this world helps us answer life's biggest questions, questions of destiny. Where are we going? Questions of origin. How did we get here? Purpose. Why are we here? And last week, we looked at a mega important topic in our culture today, a topic of identity. And how, because of Jesus' rule and reign in this place, it forms in us an identity not built on what we do, but on what Jesus did and on who Jesus is. It's our identity. And if both these things are true then, that Jesus answers the biggest questions of life, that our identity is formed in him, then certainly the conclusion we must make as Christians is that Jesus deserves to be the very center of our lives. Now, here's a challenging question for you. Think about this. Is Jesus at the very center of your life? Do you base your financial decisions on Jesus? Do you pattern your marriage or your relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or with your friends at school or work off of what you see in Jesus? Do you filter your fears and anxieties and worries through Jesus? Or as an alternative, and what we see in our culture happening more and more and more, is Jesus something that you add to your life? It's an add-on, someone that you go to when you need some help with something, but then you kind of put Jesus on the shelf, or is Jesus at the very center of your life? A challenging question, I know, but something that Jesus addresses here in this amazing text from Revelation chapter 1. So let's go look at this now, starting with verse 9. We're going to pick through this verse, and John says this, I, John, this is the apostle, the one who wrote the gospel that Pastor Nate read, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And let's pause there. That Greek word for testimony is better understood in our language as an eyewitness. John was one of the very first apostles called to follow Jesus. He was there at the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. He saw the um, transfiguration of Jesus in a limited, glorified state. And John was actually the only one of the apostles in the Gospels, as we have recorded, who saw Jesus die. The rest fled. Jesus, or John was there when Jesus breathed his last. And of course, John saw the resurrected Jesus. And what he's saying here is he cannot stop talking about this Jesus. He's giving testimony. He's given witness to the facts of the things that he saw, the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's why he's in prison, because he's a pastor, and he can't stop preaching and talking and pointing others to Jesus. In the very beginning of this verse, he gives us another clue to the surrounding environment. He says, I'm a partner and a brother with you in the tribulation. 
Now, we've touched on this just a little bit for the last two weeks on what it was like to be a first century Christian. But for us to really get into this text, let me share with you the level of persecution that the very first Christians experienced in the first, second, third century. Now, right off the bat, we see in the book of Acts that the Christians were persecuted. Uh, John and Peter, the same John, they were thrown into prison. Stephen, he was the very first martyr. He was killed. He was stoned to death. Then we have primarily the leaders of the Christian church, guys like Barnabas, Timothy, Silas. The leaders were persecuted, thrown in prison, beaten. But by and large, the persecution of the church didn't get down to the members, to the everyday, ordinary people of the church, until a man by the name of Nero became emperor of Rome. And Nero, you can think of him as like an ancient Hitler, a Stalin, just an evil man. And he wasn't, a very good he wasn't a very good emperor in terms of his policies. At this point in history, Rome was on the verge of bankruptcy, and a fire broke out in Rome around 65 AD. And Nero, being a politician, he was looking for somebody to blame, and he chose the Christians. And a mass persecution broke out, not just against the leaders, but against the entire Christian church. And we know this because Roman historians themselves recorded it. This is a writing from a man by the name of Tacticus, writing in 116 AD, about 50 years after the event of the fire. Listen to how he describes the attitude of Christians and the heart of Emperor Nero. He writes this, To get rid of the report of this fire... Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our officials, Pontius Pilate, which let's look at that real quick. This is 116 AD, a Roman historian. It lends a lot of credibility to what you have in your hand in terms of the accuracy of the biblical writers. That's a little side note. And he concludes, a most mischievous, mischievous superstition broke out not only in Judea, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. That was the attitude of the Romans at this time. And so then we know from history that during the reign of Nero, the apostle Paul was beheaded. This is a famous painting describing that. And the Christians during this time endured such horrible things as being dipped in oil and lit on fire, hung from bridges, tortured, thrown to animals, thrown in prison, their property taken from them. This was the level of persecution, and this is only what happened from the state level, from the empire itself, let alone what it was like to be a Christian in a community with your neighbors and with your non-believing family. See, the reason and the way in which the Roman Empire worked was like this. Rome would go, they would conquer a territory that had a different um, religion, that had different beliefs, that spoke different languages, and had different customs. And the reason the empire was so strong for centuries, much like America is today, is that the government was very liberal in its policies. And here's what I mean. Don't take that word too much uh, without a grain of salt here. What I mean is this, is that the Romans allowed you, once they conquered you, to trade and make money and live your life really as much, or as, as, as much as you wanted to live your life, you could do it. You could worship your own gods. You could have your own festivals. They didn't eliminate any of the cultures of the different societies, the different cultures in which they conquered. They just asked for one thing, that on occasion you would go to a government shrine, you would bow down, bend a knee, put money in the offering, and say this phrase, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. You could live your life however you wanted to. 
but you had to bend a knee and you had to say Caesar is Lord. Now this provided or presented itself a problem for the early Christians, of course, because there was only one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. And the Christians refused to bow down to Caesar and as a result, the community, the neighbors, grew very suspicious of Christians. They feared what would happen. Look, the Roman Empire, the army is just around the corner. If you don't bend your knee to Caesar, they're going to come here and they're going to do worse things to us. And so they started one by one turning in Christians. Family members turned in their own family members. Neighbors turned in their own neighbors. And we know this because of another important document in history. This is a letter from 115 AD from a lawyer by the name of Pliny the Younger who's a very famous prosecuting attorney. That fame led him to be, at one point, a governor in an area of Turkey, and he had so many Christians being brought to him by the community that he didn't know what to do. How do we prosecute these people called Christians? And in this letter, he wrote it to the then emperor at the time, an emperor by the name of Trajan, and he asked Emperor Trajan three questions in terms of how to deal with Christians. He writes this. Number one, should any distinction be made for the age of the Christian? Or should the very young be treated differently from mature people? Let that sink in. That means that at some point in Christian history, children were persecuted at the same level as adults for their faith in Christ. And then he asked this, does denying being a Christian mean the accused is pardoned? And is the name of Christianity itself enough to condemn the accused? Or is it the crimes associated with being a Christian? Again, failure to bow to the emperor, practicing worship, administering the sacraments, praying to this Jesus Christ. Should we punish that or just the name of Christianity? This is what it was like to be a Christian in the first century A.D. when John receives this revelation. I know some of you are sitting here going, okay, we're really going to go verse by verse. Should I have packed a breakfast? If it's going to be this long, we'll go a little bit faster now, but I need you to understand This is so important that you get this to be in the mindset, the heart of what it was like to be a first century Christian, to be the first hearer of Revelation. So let's continue. Look at verse 10. This is John. He says that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is Sunday. He's in prison. He's taking time out of his day. Despite his circumstances, he's still faithful in worship. That's important. And he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. Not that it sounded like a trumpet, but it was like a trumpet was right behind him. And he doesn't turn right away. You get the sense that John is very afraid at this point. What in the world is going on? And the voice says this, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And you can see on this map, John is here on the island of Patmos. The churches here, these seven churches, are all in modern-day Turkey. And this is an important interpretive thing to understand as we think about the book of Revelation because many people misunderstood this, stand this book, and did understood the book. And we can look at this and go, what in the world was with these seven churches? Well, John wants to show us something. Jesus wants to show us. This number seven in both Roman culture and in the Bible is a number of completeness. It's a perfect number. And so it's written to these seven churches because these were under the purview of John. John is like a bishop at this time. He's the pastor of all the pastors in this area. But because the number seven was used, that means that it's actually a book written for all churches in the area. There were churches in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Rome, in Jerusalem, all over the world. 
But that word seven means it's written for them, but it's also written for us. That's why we're studying this book. That's why it was added to the canon. And you're going to see this number pop up over and over and over as we read Revelation. It's a number of completeness. And now, verse 12, John finally turns. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And then what does John do? Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. His knees buckled. He drops to the ground. And I know some of you at this point are going, okay, that's great, but what in the world is John seeing? What does this mean? And, and look, this is not saying that this is what Jesus literally looks like. You're going to go to heaven, and every time Jesus opens up his mouth, you have to duck because a sword is popping out of his mouth, cutting off heads. That's not what he's saying. But what John is trying to do here is give us an image, a glimpse of what it's like to behold Jesus in his glorified state, his majestic state. He's trying to make sense of what he's seeing using heavenly, earthly language to describe a heavenly being And so let's unpack a little bit more of this symbolism, what John's trying to show us, what he saw. First of all, the easy one, we'll start there. It says that he saw seven golden lampstands. Well, if you go to verse 20, Jesus can understand. He knows that John has no idea what he's talking about, so Jesus himself interprets it. Verse 20, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And that word angels in Greek means messenger. And in Scripture, there's two types of messengers. There is a heavenly messenger called an angel. Those are the ones, the big powerful beings that we see showed up and talked to Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story. But then a regular, ordinary messenger was just a human being. And the messengers of the churches are the ones who proclaim the gospel in the churches. He's talking about the pastors. That would have been a great comfort to John, being a pastor. Jesus saying, I have the pastors, I have the churches in my right hand, fear not. And then he says, of course, the golden lampstands are the churches themselves. If you remember Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, let your light shine so forth before men. Do not hide the light of the gospel. And John goes, oh, right, yes, the church is the light of Christ. The church is the gospel. And Jesus is showing him, John and us, I have the church, I have the pastors, I have the people in my powerful right hand. That's number one. And then two, the description. He says that there are seven churches, these seven golden stands, light stands, and there is someone like a son of man in the middle. Now, To understand this, we have to have a little bit of an understanding about what it was like for the theology of the Jewish people, what they were looking for in the Messiah. And to do that, we gotta go to Daniel chapter seven. You can look that up if you want, otherwise I'm gonna put it on the screen. Daniel chapter seven. Daniel was a man who was taken from exile in Israel 
about 700 years prior to Babylon, a faithful man. He loved the Lord, and God blessed him. God gave him visions. This is Daniel in the lion's den, by the way. And in one of his visions, he actually sees God, and this is how he describes God. He says that as he looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Ancient of days, that's Daniel's language for the Father. This is Yahweh who he's describing. He sees God in this vision. But then he describes what it was going to be like for the Messiah to show up. The, The Jewish people had this longing for the Messiah, for the Savior. And Daniel's vision continues. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of days. He came to Yahweh and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What John is seeing here is prophecy fulfilled. Jesus, in his magnificent, glorified state, the kingdom-shaking, empire-destroying Son of God in his full glory. As you break down this description, look with me. How does he describe him? Well, he sees in verse 14... He's got this long, I'm sorry, 13, he's got a long robe. That's a priestly garment. That's what the priests wore. And what John is seeing is Jesus. He's the ultimate priest, the ultimate pastor. Remember Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd who came to minister to God's people. That golden sash that he's wearing, that's a symbol of royalty. Jesus said, I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. The hairs of his head were white like wool. That's the image of the ancient of days because Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. He was there from the beginning And the white hair was a sign of respect for the wisdom and the respect due to the aged. And all that sounds really good and all that sounds nice and sweet. We've got this nice Jesus. He's kind of like an old grandfather just sitting on the porch. He's got his paper open, maybe smoking his pipe and playing his fiddle. Isn't that a nice picture of Jesus, of God? And all that changes. Because John beholds something that is truly terrifying from a biblical sense. It should stir in us a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of trouble when you unpack what this really means because these eyes that were like flames of fire. Have you ever seen the Avengers movie, Captain Marvel? And when she gets all upset and her eyes turn all fiery, this is what this is really representing because fire in the Old Testament meant purity. And God used fire to purify the altar, to purify us from our sins. And only the righteous can stand before the ultimate purifying fire of God. And this bronze feet, that's a symbol of victory. Jesus' feet are bronze. That means that he stands on all of his enemies, that he's conquered the enemies of sin and death. And all those people who are persecuting the Christians and hurting Christians, Jesus stands on top of them in victory. And then the scariest one of all is this tongue like a sword. And the reason the Roman army was the most powerful army on earth for many, many centuries is that they had advanced weapons. They had advanced technology for the time. They invented a double-edged sword that was longer than any other sword, that was more powerful, it could endure more blows. And the writer of Hebrews said this, that the word of God is like a double-edged sword capable of penetrating us to the bones and the marrow. What John is saying is like the Roman army, like the Roman sword, the words of Jesus, just a word from Jesus 
can destroy you. The word of Jesus will judge you. The word of Jesus will rip you apart. That's the image that John sees. This is not Sunday school Jesus. This is not the flowing, beautiful, blow-dried hair Jesus with the blue sash and he walks around or our modern culture I'll call him bobblehead Jesus. The culture today sees Jesus as like somebody who's just here to, yep, answer your prayers. Yep, Jesus is a cool little hippie dude. He's a modern-day hipster. That is not what we see in Revelation. And my fear, my fear for our culture, and as one of your pastors that God has put in charge to care for your souls, my fear is that sometimes you see Jesus as bobblehead Jesus and not as the terrifying, magnificent, glorious Jesus that we see in Revelation, who, as we will say in just a few minutes, will return one day to judge the living and the dead. It is terrifying when you think about how sinful we are and how amazing and powerful and glorious Jesus is in his glorified state. We should be scared. If the next part of Revelation never happened. Turn with me to verse 17. This is the glorified Jesus. And John is so afraid, he's so scared because he knows that he can't possibly dare to stand or look in the eyes of this God. In the middle of 17, he's lying at Jesus' feet. And some of the most beautiful imagery and words in all of Scripture are right here. But he laid his right hand on me. The magnificent Jesus Christ in his heavenly state did something very human. He reaches down with his right hand and he lays it on John and he says, fear not. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. With his right hand touches John. John suddenly realizes that when he was walking around with Jesus in his earthly human state, Jesus with his right hand, the same right hand that reached down to an 11, a 12-year-old girl named Tabitha who had died, and he brought her back to life. He picked her up off the bed and gave her back to their amazed parents, that same right hand who reached out to a sinner by the name of Zacchaeus, a man who was evil, who was stealing from the people. He encounters the living Christ. He encounters Jesus. His heart is churned, turned. He changes from his life of sin. He embraces Jesus. That right hand reaches out and grasps Zacchaeus in a hug, that same right hand. He reached down to a prostitute by the name of Mary who was so overwhelmed with guilt and sin. Her tears are flowing from her face, covering Jesus' feet. She takes her hair, wipes his feet, the tears from his feet with her hair. It's the same right hand that Jesus laid out willingly on a cross. And as the apostle Paul says, was pierced for our transgressions that right hand, that God who gave up so much so that you and any Christian who confesses that Jesus is Lord, that puts their faith and trust and hope in Jesus so that you could be comforted, so that you would know that there's no place you can go, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can say that will keep you from the love of Jesus Christ, the magnificent one who gave up all these things for you. That's the Jesus that the first century Christians needed to see. That's the Christian, that's the Jesus that we in this century need to see, and that's why he deserves to be the center of our lives. Amen, hallelujah. Now, 
as we close, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus is the center of our life? Well, let's talk about persecution. This last week, you may have seen in the news, Valor Christian High School was all over the press. They were all over Twitter, all over Facebook, because they have a teacher, a coach, who took a job at the Christian school knowing their beliefs, but he came to the conclusion that living in a lifestyle, a same-sex lifestyle was okay. He publicly talked about that. The administration brought him in. They had a conversation. They gave him a choice. We want to help you. We want to walk with you through this, but if you can't do that, it's your choice. We just ask you to resign. He chose to resign, and this got leaked to the press, and if you read the comments on Nine News, the vitriol that's being thrown at Christians the things that are being said about Valor Christian High School and anybody who believes differently than the culture, it's really hate speech. And yet that's a mild form of persecution. If this was first century Rome, you know what would happen to the head of school and the teachers? They'd be dragged out to the street and they would be beheaded. That is a mild form of persecution. If Jesus is the center of our lives, what that means for us is we can face these mild forms of persecution, not, not with anger, not reaching out in retaliation, but with love. Have you ever taken the time to sit and talk with somebody who has same-sex attraction to find out what's going on in their heart, to find out why they get so angry when they see this, to, to have an opportunity to love them and care for them. Stand up for your convictions, yes. But with Jesus as the center of your life, love them as Jesus loves you. And I think about the time that we're in, this coronavirus, the pandemic, the Delta virus, and variant, and all these things that are happening we can get so bent out of shape when we see people who disagree with us, who, who do one thing but not the other thing. If Jesus is the center of our life, we can approach the problems of our world with great hope, but most importantly, with great love. Again, the love that Jesus showed us we can give to the world. That's what's going to make a difference, Christian, is with Jesus as the center We'd have the capacity to love and endure and love and endure. That's the only reason we're here today having this message because those first century Christians tapped into the living one and put their faith and trust in him. May we do the same. As we look at how Jesus reigns, it answers all of our questions. It forms in us an identity so that we can, by God's grace, center our lives around him. Amen.